This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello again, my good friend, and welcome into another edition, the 67th, in fact, edition of what we call the Stream Police Podcast. And uh, we're a little uh, delayed on this month's episode, unfortunately, because I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but man, I was sick last uh, the last week, like the full seven days. I, I mean, it's it's pure evidence that I uh, am, am getting older, as if I needed any more. Because uh, I feel like I used to be able to bounce back from these kind of like getting a, I think it was just like a severe cold, um, had like the you know the the body soreness, all that kind of stuff, the endless uh, you know blowing my nose every five minutes and coughing stuff up and my throat killing me for about you know six straight days and uh, you know used to I feel like I could bounce back from those in about forty eight hours tops and uh, now it takes me more like seven days to get over them so that's just just further evidence that I'm uh, getting older and generally deteriorating in health but uh, I feel like you know I, I'm finally able to uh, to to come in here in the closet and record the show for you because there was just no way I was going to be able to do it for the last week so I felt bad having to delay the show another full week when we already only give it to you once a month but uh, you wouldn't have wanted to have heard what I sounded like last week. Plus, I think I would have probably left like flecks of blood on my pop filter if I had uh, ended up doing that. So it was a good idea for all of us to just sit it out. Um, and it gave us a little bit more to even talk to or talk about, I should say, on this month's edition. So I am Clint Davis. If you haven't listened to the show before, I talk about movies and TV here on uh, on the program from my little studio in my closet in the outskirts of Columbus, Ohio. And in just a little bit, we'll be hearing from our music man, Andy Sedlak, who cuts his portion in his uh, spare room home studio there in Dayton, Ohio. So uh, just a couple good old Midwestern boys here talking to you about movies and music and television. And if you ever want to reach out to us, there's plenty of ways to do it. We're going to run them down for you in the show. First off, I want to uh, remind you to Follow me on Instagram, if you haven't already, at Mr. Clint Davis, M-R Clint Davis. And uh, the reason I think you'll enjoy following me there is because I always uh, show you kind of what movies I'm watching as I'm watching them. It's the only place you're really going to uh, see that, all these the all the things that I'm taking in at any given moment. I don't on, – on the stream police, I don't really talk about all those movies that I watch. Um, that was kind of the thing we used to do when we had our website, Overdue Review, which uh, you know is been now defunct for more than a year because of some hackers that got in there. And uh, anyway, I won't I won't go through that whole sad story again. 
But now, um, basically, I mean, I'm just watching them. I'm not really even writing about these movies, but I'm just watching them because I want to. I've had this list of films I need to see for, you know, going back to my teens. And, you know, finally, a lot of them are a lot easier to track down now with streaming services and stuff like that. But mostly I get all the movies I watch from the library, in case you ever wondered where do, where does he find all these movies. I don't own them all. Uh, they usually all come from the library because I'm just able to, you know, reserve them and go and pick them up and, and watch them and, and get them back to them. So it's uh, – and if you're looking for, like, art movies, foreign movies, your library probably has them all. It's the best place to find them by far because those movies are hard to find – at, at movie stores, and if you do find them at movie stores, they're very expensive to get. Um, and a lot of times you don't really want to watch them multiple times. They're pretty heavy watches usually, so the, that's why I feel like the library is the best possible way to watch them. Also, the Canopy app, if you've never heard of it, it's it's done through libraries. You have to have a library card to use that app. Um, that one has pretty much all the Criterion Collection movies, all the foreign classics, tons of documentaries. So if you're into those kind of movies – you should definitely check that out. It's called Canopy with a K, K-A-N-O-P-Y. But, yeah, follow me at Mr. Clint Davis to see what I'm watching as I'm watching it on my Instagram stories. Uh, all right, so, yeah, I'm going to skip the stogie. Usually I light up and uh, sit here and smoke my stogie while I talk to you. But not going to do that this time because I, I still am a little bit under the weather, still uh, bouncing back from that cold. Man, it really hit me with vengeance. So in this month's show, I want to talk to you about Avengers Endgame because pretty much it seems like now everyone on Earth has seen it. The box office numbers reflect so, but I'm sure there are some of you out there that have not seen it yet. So for you guys, I'm going to talk about that show at the very end. So I'm going to do all the stuff I usually do in the episode. I'm going to do all my ending stuff like my recommendations on Netflix and Amazon and all that. And then at the end, I'll, I'll talk about Avengers Endgame and I will talk about it with full spoilers. So I'll give you plenty of warning before I do that as well. So if you want to listen to the show but not hear Avengers spoilers, then you can still do that. I just wanted to let you know. So I'm going to talk about that later on in the show. All right, let's go ahead and get to what we always do at the uh, opening of the, the show, or ha as we, what we have been doing, I should say, for 40 episodes now, and that is our latest entry into the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, Canon. And uh, this is our 40th entry into what we're calling the greatest TV show theme songs ever made. And, you know, last month I did the Rawhide theme, and I got some good feedback on that. It seemed like you guys really liked that one. That one really kicked some ass, and uh, it felt like you guys agreed. At least the people who got back to me did anyway. I don't know about the rawhide haters out there. Maybe they hate that song. But if they do, then they're no friend of mine, honestly. Th this time, though, on the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, I'm picking a song from a very different genre, but one that bangs just as hard. The song, anyway, not the genre. No genre bangs as hard as the weekly Western does. But the song does, I should say. And I've realized that, you know, in the 39 previous entries of this segment, we have completely ignored an entire genre of television that's been around for ages. It's basically been around as long as TV's been around and produces more content than pretty much any other genre. So we're going to make amends with that today. We're going to include our first soap opera ever into the list of greatest TV show theme songs of all time. And it's going to come in the form of CBS's The Bold and the Beautiful.
I got to tell you, the reason I was inspired to pick this song for this particular episode is because summer is finally almost here. And if you grew up at any time in the late 80s, you know, in the into the 90s, I should say, you know, after the late 80s, if you grew up any time after that, because even today, if you're growing up, this could count for you. You've pro- you probably remember hearing this theme song coming from the TV at your house, your grandparents' house, some relative's house, you know, when you were out for school for the year. When I went back and I listened to this song again, all I could think of was being at my grandparents' house in lovely old Trenton, Ohio, and hearing this song in the background on some of those summer days. And I don't even know if anybody was really watching this show, but it was just on. It was just on in the background, like Price is Right would end, and then this show would come on, and the song would play. And it's just a instantly memorable theme song. It's a great theme song. And I also remembered as I was listening to it that, oh yeah, this song kicks ass. The theme for The Bold and the Beautiful, or B&B as its legions of fans call it, is actually called High Upon This Love. So it's got a title. It's not just one of those boring ones. It's called The Bold and the Beautiful theme song. It's called High Upon This Love, and it's essentially, the song is just like a 10-second piece of music that's repeated with various instruments. Uh, you know, it's a ba da ba ba da ba ba and they just re- repeat it over and over again with, like, piano, and then we're going to do it with you know, some woodwinds and then, and, but the saxophone, that's the real star of the show uh, when it comes to this theme song. This song and the show's whole deal really are so 80s. I mean, don't you just listen to that and immediately think of like the neon colored suit jackets and, uh, you know, the, the the brightly colored sports cars and all that Miami Vice kind of stuff. The Bold and the Beautiful premiered in March of 1987 on CBS, and it follows this family that runs a fashion label in Los Angeles. I had no idea what the show was about before I did the research for this segment. I mean, it's one of those that's been on forever. I've never seen an episode of it, but I and I've heard this theme song a million times, but I didn't know, like, anything about what the show's about. So it's about a rich family, runs a fashion label in L.A., and so you've got like these sexy people, rich people in the world of high fashion in Los Angeles in the 1980s. And I got to say, that's a recipe for TV gold if there ever was one. The show is kind of like a spinoff and sister show of the other long running CBS soap, The Young and the Restless. Both of those shows were created by the husband-wife team of Lee Bell and William Bell. It's kind of cool uh, that they you know, had this like soap opera empire, this husband and wife. But yeah, if you wondered why The Young and the Restless and The Bold and the Beautiful seem to have like the same title, basically, it's because the shows are related, um, spun off of each other. Since 1996, The Bold and the Beautiful has been run by their son, Bradley Bell, and uh, it's continued to be one of TV's most popular soaps, as well as grabbing 31 daytime Emmys during its 32 years on the uh, on the air so far. So basically, you know, it wins an Emmy every single year since it's been on the air, which is pretty impressive for any TV series to say, let alone one that's been on for 32 years. And one of the Emmys it actually won is for its music. <laughs>
<laughs> the theme song itself has remained almost completely unchanged more than 30 years later, which is a, I mean, that's the best testament you can get to how great a theme song was at the beginning. And the tune itself was written by these guys named David Kurtz and Jack Alaco. So for 30 years, they're still using the same song. They haven't tried to change it up like other TV shows have done, like we've covered uh, on this segment before. Sometimes I have to single out, like, well, through these two years, this was when the theme song was the best. This is the one we're talking about. But basically, for Bold and the Beautiful, they've just kept it the same all the way through. And why not? This thing kicks ass. They did try, actually, to add some lyrics to it for the closing credits for about one year in the late 90s. But it didn't stick. So I listened to that, and I had to have to say, I thought, you know, going into it, I'm like, well, they added lyrics to the song. It's it's probably terrible if it only lasted for one year. But I actually really did like that version. It, the song is sung by Dion Warwick, and it's called High Upon This Love. And it's actually pretty damn good. It's It sounds seriously dated for having come out in 1997. It sounds like it would have fit more in, you know, about 1989. But uh, I, I dug the song. I thought it was pretty good. It's on... Uh, I think you can find it on Spotify. If not, you can find it on YouTube. Now, did you know that Usher was on The Bold and the Beautiful in the 90s right before his music career took off? I did not know that. Some mainstream people, though, who have done guest spots on the show over the years include people like Gina Rodriguez, Fred Willard, Betty White, Alan Thicke. Uh, it's aired more than 8,000 episodes so far, and I have never seen a single damn one, but I do know this theme song, and I do know that it kicks ass. High Upon This Love, the theme from The Bold and the Beautiful, is my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Going back to 1987 on CBS, 8,000 episodes strong. Like I said, never seen a single one, have no desire to, but what a great song. And just having never done a soap opera theme song for the greatest TV show theme song of all time. And I got to tell you, it's not the only one on my short list. That's not the only great soap opera theme song. And I'm sure you can think of a couple other ones. There's one that sticks out in my head as one of the absolute best that I'm thinking of right now, actually, is another one of those that I just, it makes me think of summertime. Uh, did you ever watch soaps? Uh, I've never really known anyone that watched them, honestly. It's one of those stereotypical kind of like, yeah, grandmothers who are retired, they stay at home and watch soaps all the time. But mine never did, and I never really knew anybody who did. But there clearly are legions of people who watch them because they've dominated the daytime TV slots on the networks going back since the beginning of television. So people are watching them. They're not just there. To, I mean, they are there to fill time, but people definitely do watch them. So, or else they, the, those slots would all just be filled with, you know, uh, people's court ripoff shows, which is what a lot of the other uh, daytime slots are filled with at this point, just trashy stuff. So I don't know. I've never seen an episode of it. I, I wonder if you have, or if you've ever, have you ever gotten hooked in soaps? I I, I don't know. All right, moving on from The Bold and the Beautiful to a show 
that you know actually it could it could have that title as well because the people on HBO's Game of Thrones pretty damn bold and pretty damn beautiful. I wanted to uh, talk about the final season, which is airing now on HBO. I'm not going to get too much into a bunch of spoilers, but again, I'm going to assume here that a lot of you guys have already seen it. If you're interested in seeing it, that you've been keeping up because the ratings have been massive. It continues to be HBO's you know, biggest hit that they've ever had, which is really saying something because they've had some big-time hits over the years. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is the, the cultural... Uh, product really of our times i mean this is the show that everyone watches when it's on which is so rare these days no one does that but people do do it with this show so the final season of game of thrones airing right now on hbo i talked about it last month that before any episodes of the final season had had aired that i was not really that excited about it just because we had already seen in the last few years ever since the fifth season of the show, when they went away from the books of George R. R. Martin, because he he ran out, they ran out of books. He just stopped writing them at some point, um, and who knows if he's ever going to get back. The show really has dipped in quality. It's just become a lot more predictable, a lot more uh, typical than it was. It was there was something really edgy and special and different about what the show was in the early seasons, and. That's why, you know, for years I've kind of been saying here on the show that it, it just it's gotten worse and worse as time has gone on. But I mean, I'm still glued to every episode because you've got a lot invested in this. There's a lot of storylines still loose and, and need to be wrapped up. A lot of characters that you still really enjoy, a lot of actors that you love watching. It's definitely one of the best casts that's ever been put together in TV, film, whatever, in the history of entertainment. Uh, they did such a great job casting this show. The look of the show is still gorgeous. I think it's still, it still it looks uh, you know better than it has ever looked. You can say that for it as the the budgets continue to get bigger. But there's just you know something really lacking in the way that they've told the stories and the way they've developed the characters. They just kind of stopped being that interesting as uh, the seasons have dragged on here. So, but we're in the final season now, uh, massive blockbuster season. And we're almost done with it. As I'm talking to you right now, there are two episodes left to air. Um, but, you know, here's the question I've got for you as we wrap up Game, Game of Thrones. And we'll talk more about what how it ended and everything in next month's episode. But do you actually think that Cersei has any chance of ruling in the end? Do you really think that that's a possibility? Because if you don't think that that's a possibility then what's really interesting about this conflict at all in the end? I mean, there, there's really, I think it's it's kind of the reason why they've set up so many different possible outcomes because they know that you know in your heart of hearts, there's just she's not going to be the one in the end. It's just not going to happen um, because that would just be too nihilistic and it would and people would probably be too mad. And But I don't know. I mean, people... Would be I think are going to be mad no matter what happens. It's just one of those things. There's no real way to end it where everyone's going to go. Yeah, that was the be- you know best possible way. That's how it usually goes with the endings of any TV shows. People hated the ending of The Sopranos when it first aired, but you know over the years it's become known as as one of the greatest endings in the history of TV, if not the greatest, um, because it's just completely bold and it. But it makes sense. It's not cheap. Even if it felt that way at the time, it actually makes sense and it does tell you something that happened there. 
if you pay attention to the way the the scene is cut. So, but do you really think that in the end Cersei's going to have any chance of continuing to rule? Now, I would say if it was George R. R. Martin who was totally in charge of the show, who was writing the the scripts and who was, you know, kind of running the show at this point, I'd give her about a 50-50 shot. Cuz I think that he he you know, could make it that way. But with the way the show has been written for the past few seasons, I just think there's no way in hell. So essentially it's just going to come down to John or Daenerys in the end of the day. And that that's kind of how they've, they've been telegraphing it anyway for these last few episodes, because we've hardly seen Cersei at all. She's hardly had a line of dialogue this entire season. She's basically just had sex with some guy and that's pretty much all she's done the whole season. Um, so it, she's been, kind of missing in action. We haven't seen her at all. So it's just really going to come down to John or Daenerys, I think, in the end of the day. And I'll give them credit, the writers, for cranking up the stakes on that choice because in the because a season ago you really just felt like it was going to be Daenerys versus Cersei and you didn't think John really was going to play that big of a part other than being supportive, other than, you know, having armies there and having being able to lead people because he's a natural leader. But the show has kind of tried to go out of its way to make strong cases for and against both of them. More, I would say, against Daenerys and more for Jon because they basically have done such a bad job over the years of making Jon into somebody who's three-dimensional. He's just so flat, and it sucks because he could you know, really be an interesting character, but he's just... In the end, he's like Ned Stark, but less interesting because Ned had that little had that secret of John being his bastard son. So that made him a little bit more dark, a little bit more interesting. We weren't sure what the story was there. We were sure that we were sure that he was lying about something, you know. But I mean, he was tight with Robert Baratheon, who wasn't really a nice guy. So there was a, a chance that maybe Ned himself was kind of had some secrets, had some skeletons in the closet. But with John, it's been clear from day one that he has no skeletons in the closet. I mean, we were there when he lost his virginity. We were there when, you know, he took the oath and we we've seen all the big moments in his life. So we haven't he has no secrets uh that are going to make him seem like a bad guy. He only had a secret that ended up making him look more like somebody who should lead in the end. And that's kind of the way it's been the entire series. He's just been this hero who's been kind of made out of, out of uh, basically steel the whole time because nothing can get in his way, not even death, uh, on his way to ruling you know all the continents from the Iron Throne. I just don't see what's going to get in his way. So it, it could end up being an interesting little... Uh, showdown between those two between this this battle of of the kind of immovable object and the irresistible force or whatever uh i would say between those two that's uh that's a good way to describe them um but yeah they've just done nothing to make him someone who's interesting he's just a good guy and that's that doesn't go very far in the last 20 years in TV, just having a good guy ever since, you know, we were introduced kind of to really like Andy Sipowitz on, on NYPD blue, but especially when we were introduced to Tony Soprano um, and all the characters who've come after him, male or female, who are just bad guys that you root for a character like Jon Snow is not very interesting anymore. We're just not into those kind of guys, you know, 30 years ago on TV, that would have been, Obviously, the guy we'd go for, but not so much anymore. So I don't know. I'm I'm just kind of 
flat at the end of the episodes. Like I don't find myself pumped up or like gasping for air like I did when watching old episodes from older seasons. Uh, and I don't see people aren't posting reaction videos online of like f- secretly filming other people watching the show, mostly because, you know, they went off the books. So people who read the books don't have the advantage anymore of knowing like where this is going to go. They don't know the Red Wedding's coming. They don't know what's going to happen to Joffrey. They don't know that this is going to happen. So they've got to film the uh, unsuspecting TV viewers' reactions. So now nobody really knows what's going on, but no one's trying to, it doesn't seem like anybody's reacting too strongly except for saying that the show sucks now. But, you know, we've been saying that here on this show for a while now. So it's, it's kind of, People have been saying that for a little while, so that's nothing new. We've already seen, though, how John, you know, would likely fare, like I said, based on how Ned Stark fared once he got around the cutthroat actors that are, you know, littered around King's Landing. Ned didn't last very long there before his head got chopped off. So who knows if that's the way it would go with John as well. I mean, would he just not be able to last in that kind of environment? There's a chance there, but there's so little time left in the show that it's not going to matter. We're not going to see some long played out rule of John, unless we do some serious fast forwards in time uh, to see how his reign has gone or how it has ended. So it's just kind of going to end with him on the throne. And we're going to have to wonder, well, did it, how did it work out for old Johnny? Did he get his head cut off? Did he lose his way? Did he become a greedy bastard like Robert? Who knows? Plus, uh, another thing against John, he's been able to be manipulated somewhat easily because, you know, he just wants to believe the best in people. So that's kind of been his Achilles heel. But again, that's one of those flaws that makes him endearing. It's not a real flaw. It's a it's a flaw that you give to a hero because you're he's a hero. Uh, so it's like, oh, he's too trusting. He's too nice, which is a great flaw to have if you're trying to not put, you know, some heat on somebody. You're just trying to make them more endearing. So it's a fake flaw. Whereas we've been given tons of overwhelming ham-fisted evidence that Daenerys apparently is brutal and, you know, she's nuts and she just wants to kill everyone like everyone in her family has done over the, you know, generations. And it's really all kind of come out of nowhere. They've been so clunky with making her seem like a bad guy all of a sudden because we spent the whole run of the show watching Daenerys go from being this object, literal object, who wasn't even a human being, to having, you know, more agency than anyone in the show, putting together this most incredible army that anybody's ever seen that, you know, has people, a diverse you know, group of people fighting for her and, uh, you know, has some of the best minds in the entire world out there with her. And we've rooted for her the whole time. But now all of a sudden in the last season, they've suddenly tried to turn it into, well, maybe she's nuts, though, and she's a bad guy. It's so hard to buy. It just came out of nowhere. And it's so against what this whole show has been all the time, which is layer upon layer, we're going to see what's what makes these people tick. And with this, they've just kind of forced it on us that, Hey, maybe Daenerys won't be such a good leader, but we've seen time and time again, what she's done when she's had power over people and she's used it for good. Every time, uh, I would say there've been a couple of times where she's decided to take the more brutal path, but she had her reasons for doing it. And, uh, it, it was hard to begrudge her, but she was 
nothing but a liberator for the entire time we've watched her. So she's just a total good guy. There's no reason why we should ever even doubt her at this point. We've seen too much evidence that she's great. She definitely does love vengeance, and she doesn't like when people question her rule, but, I mean, who does when you get to that kind of level? So it's an interesting question, and it's it's kind of a shame that the series is going to end before we see how either of their rules will play out in the long run. That is going to be one of my disappointments, I think, that we're not going to get to see where either of them go. We're just going to kind of see them on the throne, and, well, that's it. Thanks for coming. Uh, but... Do we have enough evidence at this point to think that either of them will do a good job? I think so. I definitely think so. But we've also seen plenty of evidence that the people of Westeros don't really care who's on the Iron Throne. So it doesn't it only matters to like this insular group of people that we've seen in these highborn people. Um it doesn't really matter to anyone whose last names aren't this, these last names of the of the main families. They're, these people are just trying to live their lives. So like, you know, just the classic peons who don't really care who's on the throne. It doesn't affect their life that much. So they did do the big Battle of Winterfell episode uh, since the last time we talked, and it basically felt like I was watching the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. That's what it reminded me of, and I, I just don't like those kinds of extended battle sequences. The episodes that they've done of those in Game of Thrones, they've done two or three of them so far. Just not my favorites. Those are some of my least favorite episodes, especially when they do one of those at night. Like, at least with the Battle of the Bastards, it was you had some daylight around. This whole episode was at night. It So much of it was CGI. It was just really hard to keep up with who was doing what, who was dead, who was alive. Most of the people fighting, the entire cast almost is white guys that have beards. So it was like you had white guys with beards fighting, you know, corpses who were made out of cgi who also had like long hair and beards so pretty much everyone looked alike it was very hard to tell who was who in this episode when it really got going so i don't think it was one of the shining episodes of of game of thrones history um the the episode did take some heat from people online for saying that it's a little bit difficult to follow along with and that that's hard to deny that's a good criticism to make people also felt like the ending was a little anticlimactic um i would disagree with that the ending of that episode actually was one of the few things that did elicit a reaction from me that i've seen in this show for a long time i mean arya stark again this is a character that's been groomed as one of these great heroes for a long time but look she trained to be a killer. She's and she's brilliant. And she did she earned this. I mean, I think she spent years of her life. I mean, she went blind in order to learn how to be a better killer. That's that's what she's been doing. She hasn't been going to you know, going across the the high seas and and visiting different kingdoms like some of these other characters have been doing, getting soft over time. She's been getting hard over time and it all kind of led to that. So I thought that they did earn that moment. And it was a good payoff, and it was a great way to end that episode. Uh, even if some of the other moments in the, in the show were a little cheap, I really I did like that ending because it did get a good reaction out of me, which it, the show just hasn't done very much in the last few years. I'm, I'm glad that they kind of got right to it and they didn't drag it through to another episode uh, because I've told you many times I thought the White Walker storyline was the the worst thing about the show because it just turned it into kind of another zombie show. But that's gone. That's done. Did it feel like it was over in a hurry? Sure, but this show is rushing to do things in back-to-back episodes now that they would have taken full seasons to draw out in previous years. It's just the way it is. It's budgetary stuff. 
the, the show's too costly to make, even though it gets tons of ratings. The cast is a huge cast. They get paid a lot. The effects in every episode are massive. The sets they use are costly to, sh- to shoot on. And, you know, it's just a big production. So they've got to kind of rush things through at this point. It's, the show's been a little bit of a victim of its own success. So it'd be like uh, the, the pacing, though, is kind of shocking me because, like I said, in two episodes now, they'll do something that they would have taken full seasons to do. And, and it reminded me, it made me think of The Wire, the, uh, you know, another one of the great HBO series. It made me think, like, if The Wire all of a sudden, another show that was renowned for its slow pacing, if that show all of a sudden had the squad, like, solving a major case every single week, that, that's how it would feel. Like, if in the last season of The Wire, all of a sudden, McNulty and Bunk were, like, solving a new murder every single week and bringing down a big drug kingpin every single week instead of taking one or two whole seasons to bring down one guy. It just feels very rushed for a show that made its money by digging deep into every storyline. But that's the way it's got to go. That's that's how you knew it was going to be when they said how short these final two seasons were going to be, which are really just one season. But it's still, you know, love it or hate it. Still the biggest event in television every single week. It will be sad when it's gone. Uh, Mark my words on that because there's going to be this massive hole in the entertainment landscape. I mean, Game of Thrones is the only show where every episode gets like a million articles written about it online across tons of websites like that, that span demographics. It's not just nerd comic book websites. It's like mainstream fashion magazine websites are writing things about Game of Thrones for various reasons because there's a lot of just mass appeal of this show, and there aren't a lot of shows that are doing that, certainly not scripted shows uh, that are doing that. So we do we need to cherish it for that reason alone. Um, and because this cast is great, they're so fun to watch, just them acting. And the show is gorgeous at times, and it still is, exists in this world that we've spent a lot of time getting to know and that's spent a lot of time getting built up. And uh, So it deserves our attention. It deserves some applause. Uh, for that reason. So uh, it's, it is, it's going to be sad when it's gone because there's just going to be a lot of empty vacuous space in the entertainment landscape. So by the next time we talk, the final episode will have aired. It will be over. And it's uh, it, it really is the end of an era and one that kept HBO on top of the TV world for another eight years. So it deserves some serious credit for doing that as well. Game of Thrones, the final season airing right now, on HBO. If you have thoughts, send them to me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. All right, before I toss things to uh, Andy, I wanted to mention something that's been in the news lately I wanted to see if you had heard about it and that is Disney's Netflix killer Disney Plus uh some of the details have finally started to come out about it we've known for a couple of years now that Disney was going to do its own streaming service that news came out a while ago nobody really knew what it was going to consist of other than okay are you going to be able to watch like all the old Disney movies which would be big enough there's a million of them over the years and so many of them come out every single year and they always dominate the box office so that would be enough i think to get you by on a streaming service but it turns out it's going to be much more than that and that's why 
calling it a Netflix killer, I think, is a legitimate because there. I mean, Hulu's tried to challenge it, and Hulu's had its own acclaimed shows, and Amazon's had its own acclaimed shows, and they both have great movie selections that I would, I, well, Amazon especially, I would say its movie selection rivals, if not tops, Netflix's. Um, as far as great movies every single month, I always seem to find more on on Amazon than I do on Netflix anymore. But Disney Plus is going to kind of do everything that those do, plus it's going to challenge in the originals landscape, which is where Netflix does make a lot of its money. And it's going to cost like half the price. So that's why I'm saying this thing is a legit contender here. Disney Plus is almost here, uh, and I think it's going to make a legitimate threat to Netflix's dominance. So this new streaming service is set to launch on November 12th. That's when it's going to make its debut. That's when it's expected to anyway, and it's going to cost 6.99 a month. So that is that is seriously cheap. That's about half of what Netflix costs you now, and the fees of Netflix just went up again and they kind of keep rising. It's kind of a, a bad thing with Netflix. You can't lock in a price. It's just you you're kind of at the mercy of whatever they decide to charge. So who knows? Maybe it'll end up driving Netflix's price down. That would be great for everybody. You will also, though, have the option with Disney Plus to pay a flat $70 fee to get the service for an entire year. So I really like that a lot. So that means you'd end up actually paying less than $6 a month to get this whole thing, and you'd have it for a year. That's something that uh, I don't I don't know if Netflix offers that. I don't think they do. But just letting you pay a fee, so then you would not be at the mercy of changing fees, because you could lock in your rate at the beginning of every single year, just pay it on a flat rate, and seventy bucks is not bad at all for an entire year of um, being able to watch everything from Disney plus everything else that it, that it's going to come with. So this thing is going to be can't miss for people who have kids and anyone who considers themselves a big Disney buff. I have to imagine, which represents a ton of people alone. So they've got a big audience right there. Plus, it's going to have all the Marvel stuff, which is owned by Disney, all the Star Wars stuff, Pixar movies, even the entire run of The Simpsons is going to be on this thing because now Disney owns a big chunk of 20th Century Fox's library, including the entire run of The Simpsons. It's now owned by Disney. So that whole thing is going to be every season of it, all 30, 31 seasons, how many there are now of The Simpsons, are all going to be on Disney+. Plus. So that alone is a huge uh, amount of content. And that's kind of, I think, one of the things that kept the FX app floating for a while was having the entire run of The Simpsons. But now I think that's going to go away from there and it's going to be on Disney+. Plus. So we're talking about some of the most iconic, beloved media franchises in history just with those four. We've got, we've got uh, Marvel, we've got Star Wars, we've got Pixar, and we've got The Simpsons. Those are those four things alone four legitimately the most beloved brands in the history of entertainment, and that doesn't even include just Disney itself. So again, this thing is going to be massive, and it's going to be $6 a month. Uh, or was it six ninety nine a month? Yeah, it's going to be six ninety nine a month, or like I said, you can pay that flat rate. So it's it's legitimate. This sounds like a legitimate threat. Disney has also said that it plans to produce about 50 original titles for the service a year, which is a large number, even if that doesn't quite match Netflix's insane plate of original productions. But you can probably expect that number to increase over the years. We're start, We're talking about in its first year in existence they're trying to do 50 original titles so all new stuff i'm imagining set in those universes set in the star wars universe set in the marvel universe who knows maybe pixar will do a tv series and they'll get it for disney plus i mean they haven't said anything about that but could you imagine that would be huge 
Uh, they'll definitely be going after some nostalgia, too, for people who grew up watching Disney Channel because I'd have to imagine they're going to have the whole runs of those old Disney Channel shows plus all those great, like, cheesy Disney Channel original movies that I know Beth loves so much um, and runs of those animated shows from one Saturday morning that used to be on ABC, like Recess and Doug. have to imagine those whole runs of those shows are going to be on Disney Plus as well. So nostalgia is going to be a strong factor here. Disney Plus, though, doesn't need to take down Netflix. That's not what we're looking for. We don't want them to take down Netflix because Netflix does provide us a lot of good content and a lot of good service at a pretty good price still. It just needs to give it some competition for this to work out for all of us viewers. If they can keep Netflix from raising prices continually over and over again or maybe even force them to lower their price a little bit, then this will be a huge win for all of us, and it gives us another thing to watch. So Disney Plus coming out in November, it's going to be massive. I can't wait to see what the layout is like, what the app, how it runs, um, and all the things that they've got on offer there because it sounds like it's going to be a little bit overwhelming at uh, such a cheap price. So I wonder if you're interested in Disney Plus. If you're as interested in it as I am, I have to imagine you probably are. Who doesn't love all the things Disney owns? I mean, they've got kind of everyone covered there. All right, I'm going to toss things over to Andy. I'm going to take some drinks here, and then uh, we'll we'll get back, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a true crime documentary I watched recently that, that left me absolutely devastated that I think you need to check out as soon as you can. And uh, we'll talk about Avengers Endgame as well. I'll give you my thoughts, good, bad, and otherwise, on that massive blockbuster. So all that's coming up next, uh, but take it away, Andy. Let's see what he's been listening to this last few weeks. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. My name is Andy Sedlak. I'm the music uh, curator, the music editor, chief wannabe aficionado all around uh, music maven from the Stream Police podcast. I thank you for your attention. And if you're enjoying what you hear, you know I got to do this. If you're enjoying what you hear, well, do us a little favor. Go to wherever you get your podcast and just just leave us a, a positive review. A, a five-star rating would be nice. Uh in the oversaturated podcast market, that will indeed go a long way. And also, hey, tell your friends about us. You know, if you know somebody who really thinks, who really thinks about this stuff, who takes time to consider the roles that 
uh, film and music play in their lives, if they're a lover of the arts, well, God, let them know about us. Let them know. Thank you very much. All right. Let's get started. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Is anything more cherished than a local music scene? If you want to see old timers get misty, ask about local music. It's it's such a point of pride, and rightfully so. Some local music scenes blossomed into full-blown cultural trends. There are local pockets that gained so much popularity and notoriety that they took over the national scene. Think about it. There's the Motown sound, Philly soul, Bronx, doo-wop, Chicago blues, Atlanta hip-hop, West Coast hip-hop, East Coast hip-hop, Seattle grunge, Dust Bowl folk, that polished Nashville sound, Austin country, Gulf country, Bowery punk, London punk, Dayton funk, Kingston reggae, SoCal rock, think Laurel Canyon, New Orleans boogie, Detroit indie, that San Francisco psychedelic hate ashbury sound, the Asbury Park Shore sound, Memphis rockabilly, there are others. These are local music scenes that went on to have a tremendous impact on music in general. But it's hard to think of a local or regional sound that became popular recently. Everything I just mentioned was popular at least 20 years ago. At least. The fact of the matter is that fewer people are being influenced by local musicians. I'm going to say that again. Fewer people are being influenced by local musicians. So if fewer people are being influenced by local artists, are we talking about the death of the local music scene? Is that what's happening? Here's what we need to realize, even if it is sobering. If this is the death of local music scenes, it's natural. It's natural. And even as sounds begin to swell, the likelihood that they'll bust out and become a, a full-blown co- full uh, cultural trend is, is slim to none. But still, this disillusion is natural. And here's why. Regional music has gone the way of uh, some regional foods. Regional dialects are gradually disappearing. There used to be regional television shows, radio shows. Not anymore. Regional stores have closed up because of larger national and international chain stores. You go from town to town, buildings look somewhat similar. I went on a work trip out to Oklahoma a few years ago. Got to be honest, looked a lot like Dayton, Ohio. When was the last time you saw a local diner? Used to be a staple in every town. Now it's Applebee's and uh, Waffle House at every exit. There are exceptions, of course, but we're not bound by region. Anymore, For better or worse, we're more global, more interconnected. It's not something to like or dislike. It's just the way it is. So it's only natural that music would follow suit most of the time. If you catch a band in Dayton, you could likely hear the same type of music in Columbus or Chicago or Albuquerque. New music is the result of 
somebody's influence. And if more and more people are influenced by the same things, you're going to have a larger swath of byproduct. Yes, there are always exceptions. Don't email me with every one of them. But if you catch a country band in Nashville, it'll sound similar to a country band in Columbus. It's just the way influences travel these days. Fewer people are being influenced by local musicians. Fewer people being influenced by local musicians. What I'm talking about is not the death of individuality. It's the death of regional individuality. Here's Joe Rogan talking to Chris Stapleton about what he's seeing in Nashville. Yeah, what I've heard about Nashville is that Nashville started out as sort of this pure sort of music environment, and then over time it became a money grab. And people realized that it's a, a, a music environment, and they said, how do we capitalize on this? And then people said, oh, I heard this is a music environment. I'm going to move there. And then it became like a place to be to be seen, and that it's it's still got the music there, but it's it's also like weirdly compromised. Does that make sense? Uh, no more than anywhere else. I mean, I, I think... Right. Is that human nature? Yeah, I don't think that that's really... Uh, that That's some kind of Mayberry version of of, of what Nashville is. I mean, that's... Narnia. Yeah, that's, that's, that, I think that's some kind of unicorn <laughs> that you're inventing. Most forms of music blossom in cities because they tend to have uh, the audience for performers, more so than farm communities, right? Well, more and more cities are realizing the investment potential of their downtowns, and they're putting up uh, new residential space. And when they want to do that, there's only so much space. So if they put up something new, then that means something old has to come down. Sometimes that means music clubs. They're not always run by uh, the greatest characters. The end result is that there are fewer places to play, and music can't spread if it can't be heard. In the last year, a number of the city's live music venues suddenly shut down. Some can't handle the steep rent increases. Others have been sold to condo developers. Cheap neighborhoods suddenly gentrified, and small venue owners began to throw in the towel. But when we talk about this issue, there is an elephant in the room. People are still playing. Yeah, fewer places to play is one issue, but the Internet is another, specifically YouTube. In the notion that you can be discovered without playing three sets a night. Or even without leaving your room. YouTube is changing the game. YouTube has changed the game. Here's Justin Bieber's mom. Way back when the kid was just 14. Listen to the way they marvel about YouTube. Patty, tell us a bit about what's happening now in Justin's life. This is hot off the presses. Yeah, actually, Justin is... He's been putting up videos on YouTube, and he is now the number one most subscribed to musician in Canada on YouTube. On YouTube. And number 20th in the world, oh. musician in Canada. Oh. And we heard him sing. We met him here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sang yeah. in the green room earlier. What Just, a voice. You oh. would never believe could come out of And out a of voice you. that's caught it's the beautiful. attention of some pretty high up people. Yeah, he was um, being courted by the different um, music labels and uh, uh, I don't know if you know if Justin Timberlake and Usher were actually fighting over who could sign him and really? so we just signed with the music label and we're moving in about a week to the US so it's a big step and uh, 
He's got a long journey and great plans. Congratulations, Justin and Patty, and keep this little family in your prayers. Of course, Justin Bieber isn't the only pop star to be discovered on YouTube. The Weeknd, Carly Rae Jepsen, Shawn Mendes all have as well. YouTube has two things it offers to musicians. First, uh, because of the artists that I just mentioned, they've shown that it's possible. It's possible. There's a roadmap now. Keep in mind, a billion people visit YouTube every month. A billion. Every month. The audience is there. The second thing YouTube has going for it is that it's accessible. You can be discovered without leaving your bedroom, and it costs nothing to get started. Here's Sean Mendez. Young Sean started imitating his favorite singers, and he'd make little videos of himself. I mean, it basically started in your bedroom. Yeah, that's where I started, right, literally behind you. That's <laughs> where it started. <laughs> literally right over there. Yeah. And in 2013, lightning struck when he started posting some of those little videos online. It suddenly got him noticed by millions of viewers and eventually by a record label. What do you think it was that clicked with people? I don't know. I have no idea. I think I have a good ear for what people like to listen to and want to hear. The Beatles broke out on Ed Sullivan, but musicians these days are breaking out on YouTube. There is no Ed Sullivan show now, and there won't be in the future. Consider these stats. Six out of ten people prefer online video platforms to live TV. YouTube reaches more 18 to 49-year-olds than any broadcast TV network. By 2025, it's projected that half of all viewers under 32 will not subscribe to a pay TV service. All of this impacts local music scenes. Musicians are less influenced by people around them and more influenced by what they see and hear online. So, we're less likely to get another Motown sound. Less likely to hear Dayton funk or for Seattle grunge to spring up and take the world by storm. It's... Just the way it is. And then we had some friends that we knew that started uploading um, covers to YouTube. And they were like, dude, you should try it. You know, why not? Just see how it goes. We just kind of started uploading videos on a whim. They ended up doing way better than we were expecting. Yep. Just kind of kept going. So we kept uploading. And then we had a couple videos go viral. Yep. 1.2 million subscribers on YouTube. That's amazing. 188 million views on that channel. All right, switch gears. <laughs> Lots of new music coming out. Taylor Swift, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Madonna has a record uh, dropping in June. I hear it'll be sort of a, a Latin-flavored thing. Springsteen's record will be a, uh, a Western kind of thing, or at least a West Coast-flavored thing. But the event of the year may have already dropped, and that's Beyonce's Homecoming special. It is streaming on Netflix as we speak. Filmed at the Coachella Festival in California in April of 2018. Beyonce's set was as in-your-face as it gets. So in-your-face, it's it's borderline punky. This is hard, 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 hard R&B. A throwback, but, but not. Beyonce's still very rooted in the present day. And it's hard to imagine anybody else in pop... Uh, putting on a performance like this one. And I'll briefly set the stage. Expectations high for Beyonce's performance in uh, 
2018. She had to cancel her her appearance at the festival uh, the year before. Why? Because she was having twins, couldn't perform. When she arrived then, she came with a concept, and that was a tribute to historically black colleges. It's called Homecoming, so get it? There are two historically black colleges here in the Dayton area, and there is pride on those campuses. I've been there. It's unmistakable. So Beyonce brought that to Coachella. She had a drum corps, a marching band, majorettes, like a hundred dancers. It's huge, and it feels huge as you watch it. But it also goes deeper. She played samples of Malcolm X in her set, of Nina Simone. There are nods to Spike Lee. Some tributes are uh, subtle and some are not, but, but it's fun to pick them out. I see it, I want it. This thing's wild. It's beautiful. It's profane. It's edgy. It's compassionate, empowering, easy to coalesce behind. It's bold, 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 bold. And it'll pump you the hell up. Beyonce's set, also challenging. Her set's challenging. And that's a good thing. Because any music artist that's ever been celebrated has, at one point or another, challenged his or her audience. That that is healthy. And there's a difference between challenging and self-indulgent, by the way. I'm not a fan of self-indulgence, but I do like to be challenged. Now... With Beyonce, she also put out a companion record that goes along with the Netflix film. It too can be challenging because it circumvents some expectations. It's like a career-spanning greatest hits set on the roids. She blows through every phase of her career, but switches directions on the fly in order to keep things at peak momentum. That means you you get pieces, just pieces of some songs. Less than two minutes of freedom. Less than two minutes of baby boy. If that sounds like a drawback, I get it. But trust her. Her emphasis is on momentum. So she switches gears fast in order to keep it up. Hell no. Middle fingers up. 
The album, by the way, about two hours from top to bottom. That's long. But it goes by like that. All right, I do want to mention, Clint's going to get on me for this. The new Taylor Swift song. (laughs) It reeks of desperation. It's called Me. Me. That kind of sums up her career. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the popularity of Panic at the Disco. Well, guess who's featured on this track? Uh, Talk about a cash grab. Ham-fisted and way, way too simplistic. Me is right in line with things like Shake It Off. I promise that you'll never find another like me. enough of that what's frustrating about taylor swift is that she is capable of depth we've heard it on songs like blank space out of the woods dress back to december all great songs but this comes from the other side of taylor swift the side that's responsible for 22 uh, never ever 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 getting back together whatever that song's called style style is a bad song So many of them are just so, so thin, so thin. And this new one reeks of desperation. My two cents for what it's worth. The audience is growing up, Taylor. Time to stop talking down to them. All right. You know we're building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it on Spotify by searching Stream Police. Every month we add five more songs, and this month all five will be from Lindsey Buckingham. I've been in a Lindsey Buckingham mood lately. Lindsey was born on October 3rd, 1949, and is mostly known for his work in Fleetwood Mac. Here's one of the songs he did for them, and uh, he produced this one too. It's called Caroline. He also had several solo hits. His uh, best known is probably this gem from National Lampoon's Vacation with Beverly D'Angelo, Randy Quaid, Anthony Michael Hall. Let's see, who am I forgetting? Oh, yeah, Chevy Chase. (laughs) Here's Holiday Road. Holiday Road. Holiday Road. Holiday Road. 
That song clocks in at 2 minutes and 11 seconds. It is epic. Uh, Buckingham was thrown out of Fleetwood Mac earlier this year. Uh, A lot of folks don't know that. Around that time, he put out a Greatest Hits album, and this is featured on it. The song is called Turn It On. Some songs uh, Buckingham plays with both Fleetwood Mac and on his solo tours. This is one of them uh, that's found a home in, in both places. It's called Big Love. You say that you love me And that you always will Oh, you me to keep you In that house on the hill Looking at Finally, I love this song. It's called Slow Dancing. That's it. Thanks so much. Want to throw it back to Clint? Behave yourselves. Peace. Thank you very much, Mr. Sedlak. As always, glad to chat with you. Uh, sorry again for the delay, man. Just uh, feeling feeling down and out and under the under the weather. I'm glad. Uh, You've been feeling a little bit better than I have, though. All right, so true crime documentaries. One of the you know biggest cottage industry genres in entertainment these days. I mean, that, that genre has been around for you know about 30 years now, but it's really just blown up in the last few years thanks to streaming services really giving everyone access to watch these shows like on repeat and uh, watch full seasons of true crime that, that you know, you kind of – Back in the day, you had to watch, you had to just catch 48 hours when it was on or 2020 or Dateline or whatever, uh, whenever you could watch. And it was always on Friday nights buried in the graveyard of TV. So the shows were kind of hard to to catch, but now much easier. So over the years, I've seen a lot of true crime documentaries, kind of all the landmark ones I've watched. I've loved many of them as well. They're some of the most compelling movies I've ever seen. There's a reason why people love them. But I have never been wrecked by one emotionally as much as I was by one that I recently watched. It's a movie called Dear Zachary. And this movie right now, if you want to check it out, it is streaming on Amazon Prime. 
It's also streaming on Canopy, the app I was talking about before, and it's streaming on Hoopla as well, which is another app that connects to your library card unless you watch uh, movies and TV shows and listen to music and audiobooks and stuff. If you want to download Hoopla, that's another really good one. Um, but Canopy is, is fantastic. You definitely need to check that out. So Dear Zachary came out in 2008, and I missed it until recently. I had never seen this movie. I had heard about it. I had it on my list, my long, ongoing list of movies that I continually add add to and have been adding to going back to my teenage years. And this one had been on there for a while, but I just had not gotten around to it, but I finally did. And you know a movie is really good when you watch it on back-to-back nights. When you watch it and then you're like, I got to watch this again the next night, which is what I did with this movie because I, I told Beth, I was like, you have to see this. And I rarely do that. Um, so, But this one did that for me. I was just so wrecked by it. And blown away by what uh, the the whole movie was. So anyway, this film is a passion project by this guy named Kurt. I think his last name's Cooney. It could be Kenny. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, Kurt Kenny, Kurt Cooney, whatever. He's this director who um, specialized in editing when he was in going to film school. And it's so evident when you're watching this movie that this guy is a master editor because I've never seen a movie that is edited quite the way this one is except for like it made me think of like jfk um which uh, to me is like that's like the benchmark i always think of when i think of a movie that's really well edited uh or natural born killers another oliver stone movie those just that frenetic kind of editing that continues to just bring things put them in your face like subliminally for like a half second make you think about them even when you don't even realize that you are thinking about them that's what he does in this documentary all the shots are like three seconds or less it's just very very fast-paced movie uh that's you know about 90 minutes long but it just feels like it really whizzes by because of the way that he has edited this movie so anyway this guy Kurt Kenny, he directed, shot, produced, and edited the entire film himself. This is as much of a one-man movie project as I have ever seen. Movies are, obviously, they're always a, a big collaborative effort. That's what they always say about filmmaking. You can't do it on your own. It's not like writing a book. Um, you've got to have the help of a bunch of people because there's so many different disciplines that go into it. But he does like everything himself. When you look at the credits, it's funny because he's pretty much the only name in the credits and this is a really impressive movie so it's a it's a really impressive one man project and it's so personal this whole film is so personal and that's not always a great thing for documentaries because you want them to be kind of arm's length and you want them to be a little bit more objective at least i do anyway but it worked very well uh for this movie and it worked very well another one it, it reminded me of was uh stories we tell the one that sarah polly the actor uh, the documentary that she made herself years ago was about her own family, and that was a really powerful movie, great movie, very personal, um, and it worked. Sometimes it works. It can work if it's if you're really personally invested in what this was about. So Dear Zachary, the movie is about the director and his his lifelong best friend, who the best friend was the victim of a murder, and people were just stunned by this guy being murdered, and, and so what the director sets out to do is tell the story about his best friend, tell his best friend's basically life story, why people loved him so much. 
um, he goes around and interviews all the people that they knew, basically, and his family and his friends and learns more about him, things that he didn't even know, even though he was lifelong friends with this guy, and finds out even more why people loved this guy so much and why it was so tragic that he was killed. So he sets out just to do that. He said he wasn't even going to release this to the public. This was just going to be a movie made for the friends and family of his friend, Andrew, who got killed. What he ended up with was something so much more far-reaching and shocking when he finally digs into his friend's life and follows the story of his murder for years on end. This movie took like almost 10 years for him to finally wrap up and finish. And you'll understand why when you watch it. There's just, it's, it's, I mean, it's absolutely jaw-dropping, the things that happen in this movie. So the editing in it, like I said, totally dizzying, but it works very well with the way he uses like these fast shots and he keeps bringing callbacks to things that people have said previously in the movie. He'll bring it back for a second and remind you that they said this. Um, he'll bring back an old shot from a home movie of his friend when someone's talking about him being the victim of this crime and it makes the whole thing even more uh, emotional for you. Because you're seeing this guy as a kid or whatever and then you, you're remembering, you're hearing this description of him being murdered and his parents lifting up the sheet and having to identify his body all the while you're looking at an old home movie of him being 10 years old and being cute and it's just it's it has this effect that's hard to describe and i haven't felt when watching many movies nearly as emotional as i felt watching this i mean this is one of those movies that moved me to tears multiple times in the time of watching it and that doesn't really happen even in true crime documentaries documentaries which are sad by nature we're, they're always about people getting killed pretty much and they're usually about justice not being done so that's about as sad as it gets uh but they're not they're not usually emotional it's usually a very sterile genre of movies with the way those films are made they're always made by somebody who's just an interested party and not somebody who's personally involved but this one was made by someone who's personally involved, and it feels that way from start to finish. It's just an incredible movie. It's unlike anything that I've really ever seen. Um, and like I said, it was so good that I watched it twice in two days because I just had to show it to Beth. And she felt the same way. She got emotional, and it it, uh, it kind of wrecked us both. Um, we both needed tissues right after it was over. And uh, it's just it's powerful stuff. It has about 10 times more heart than almost any documentary I've ever seen, especially a crime documentary. Um, the only other one that I think of when I think of a, a crime documentary that's got this much heart is Brothers Keeper, which is another one of my absolute favorites. That's another one that does have that emotion and does have t so much heart in it. And just your heart goes out to everyone involved in Brothers Keeper. And that's how it is for Dear Zachary. But I'd say this one shook me up even more than that one did and that one shakes you up pretty good so i cannot recommend this movie anymore if you like true crime at all do yourself a favor and watch this but do not expect to not be affected by it because it is a brutal watch and i'm not saying it's brutal like the things you see it's not it's not loaded with, with terrible imagery or anything like that he doesn't resort to that kind of stuff just on an emotional level it is vicious the way that it the way that it hits you it's just it hits with the full power of like Mike Tyson's punch in his prime. So it uh, came out in 2008. It's called Dear Zachary. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime. It's streaming on Canopy. It's streaming on Hoopla. And you might be able to find a DVD of it somewhere around as well. But I cannot recommend this movie anymore. Please do yourself a favor and check it out. So the best thing I watched this month, uh, something I always like to tell you about here in every episode, 
Um, I already told you about it. It's it's Dear Zachary. I think that's the best thing that I did watch this month, although I'll also give a shout-out to a couple other things because I watched a lot of really good stuff this month. The Straight Story, uh, which was a movie that I had not really heard of. It's a David Lynch movie that was produced by Disney in 1999. I somehow missed this movie. I don't remember it. It was nominated for Oscars. It was not like an underground movie, but it was this live-action Disney movie. That was directed by David Lynch, and I never saw it. And the, it's such a unique, heartfelt movie about just quiet characters. I mean, I've never seen characters that were so quiet. The movie is about this guy. It's a true story of this guy who, uh, in Iowa, decides to – He's got a, his brother had like a massive stroke, and he lives hundreds of miles away from his brother. The guy doesn't have a driver's license, can't drive a car, doesn't even have a car, whatever. Um so he decides to take his riding lawnmower and drive it all the way from Iowa to Wisconsin. Uh, and this was really happened. The guy really did this. And it, it was an arduous, like, weeks-long journey it took him to ride this little, you know, John Deere riding mower all the way across states. And it was a dangerous one, too. And that's this movie. It's like a pure character study. Gets into, you know, why this guy di- did it, why the relationship between the brothers was so bad for so long. Um, gets a little bit into his life story, but just powerful stuff. Amazing performances across the board, including Sissy Spacek and some of the most natural acting you're ever going to see. Uh, I was blown away by this movie, and I really had not heard of it. So uh, The Straight Story, I cannot recommend any more if you're looking for really a truly outstanding live-action Disney movie. That'll be one to watch on Disney Plus when it comes out. Um, and then I also watched uh, a couple many series, one called the Decalogue and one called the Thornbirds. And I actually, I love them both for very different reasons. The Decalogue was like this 10 part, really just epic exercise in short filmmaking, um, by Christoph Kieslowski, one of the best directors ever, one of my favorite directors, but he directed all 10 of these, these movies for Polish television back in the eighties. This was way before, you know, the quote unquote golden age of TV, but it's as good as anything I've ever seen done for television. Hell, it's as good as anything I've ever seen done for movies uh, also. And what he does in these hour-long movies in terms of character development are things that people struggle to do in three-hour films. Uh, but every hour, every one of the movies just tells such a unique story and tells uh, you know so many things about each character. And they're beautifully made. Each one of them was shot by a different cinematographer, so they all have a different style. Um and I, I was, I loved these. It's ten hours is a lot to watch, but I mean, you think of it like a miniseries. It's not too bad, and it was a joy to watch every single one of these. I looked forward to all of them. Uh, and again, that's called the Decalogue. And then I watched the Thornbirds as well, which was from the '80s, and that was like the big blockbuster uh, American television miniseries uh, after Roots. And I, apparently, I think it's still the second highest rated miniseries ever, behind Roots. So it was this huge event. It's uh, it's based on this, you know, classic Australian book. It's set in Australia. It's a uh, it's the movie. The show spans decades. It's about this priest who ends up falling lo- in love with this woman that he's known since she was a girl, and he kind of mentored. And they have this, you know, will they won't they relationship, and it's just very very over the top. You might have seen some of the clips I shared on Instagram if you were following me there. But I really loved it. I was sucked in by the story. I didn't know how it was going to end. There's all kinds of like sudden shocking deaths of characters all over the place. The acting's great from top to bottom. Really good stuff. Great 80s miniseries. 
epic event television that everyone kind of watched because what else were they going to watch at that point? So that was the Thornbirds. I, like I said, I watched a lot of really good stuff this month. I'd probably have to say Dear Zachary was the best of all the things I watched, though. A couple movies now streaming for you I want to let you know about on Netflix. Uh, something funny for you is Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, a classic, all right, from the 90s. And I'll never forget uh, Beth and I both loving this movie because we're, you know, the same age. And anyone who's like in their early 30s, you have to love Austin Powers. I mean, there's just something about it that takes you back. And, you know, I mean, I remember all the jokes just from what, wearing that VHS out, watching it with my friends when I was growing up. Just thought it was the funniest movie. Even before I got into James Bond, I wasn't I didn't like it because I thought it was a sharp parody of James Bond. I just thought it was funny. And then I kind of when I got really into the Bond movies, I was like, oh, my God, this was what they were doing. This was what they were doing. And it was kind of fun to see all the references there as I watched them unfold. But it's classic. It's it's on Netflix now. What an easy watch. Uh, still holds up, too, I think, if you're that age anyway. Uh, and on uh, Netflix as well, something serious for you. Revolutionary Road. Uh, really powerful stuff with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Uh, getting back together years later after Titanic to do a very different kind of movie, a very different uh, relationship story that, you know, ends about equally as as heartwarming as Titanic does. Uh, But, man, this was powerhouse. This movie was notable also because it was the first time I remember ever seeing Michael Shannon. And I think Michael Shannon got nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, even though he's only in a couple scenes of the movie, and he totally earned it because you just he's unforgettable in this movie, and it was like immediate. I'll never forget watching Revolutionary Road the first time, being like, who the hell was that guy? Like, I couldn't stop thinking about him. Here are two of the best actors of their generation in DiCaprio and Winslet together in this movie, but all I kept thinking about was this guy whose name I didn't even know because he was just so heavy such a heavy presence in every scene and just i i never forgot him he's still one of my favorite actors to this day so uh revolutionary road right now on netflix if you missed that one that's not a light watch that is very heavy heavy stuff on amazon right now for you something funny there's really nothing that funny that came out new on amazon this month so i'm not going to give you a comedy instead i'm going to give you two great action movies from the 90s mission impossible from 1996 the one that set it all off if you ask andy it's the best mission impossible movie if you ask me it's probably the second best mission impossible movie because fallout edged it out in my book but i love mission impossible i can quote it up and down um it's still one of my all-time favorites got one of the best twist endings ever and patriot games is also on amazon right now love that movie it's harrison ford at his best it's Jack Ryan. Who doesn't love Jack Ryan? It's the best of all the Jack Ryan movies. It's Sean Bean, too. So what what more can you ask for from a great action movie? And something serious for you on Amazon. I'm going to give you The Ghost Rider. Look, it's Roman Polanski. I know he's an asshole, but, man, he made some of the best movies of all time. This was his, like, last great masterpiece, really. This is one of those movies I watched years ago, haven't seen since, have never stopped thinking about it. It's a thriller with Pierce Brosnan um, and uh, Kim Cattrall, and it's got a it's got a good little cast on it, and it's just a really um, twisty, turny, dark thriller uh, from a guy who made his money making some really good thrillers back in the day, including Chinatown. Obviously, I wouldn't put the Ghost Rider quite on that level, but this one is really, really good um, if you like Polanski's style. I would check that out. It's on Amazon. Uh, right now for you.
Okay, so if you don't want to hear anything about Avengers Endgame, then this would be the time to end the show, to stop listening. If you want to turn it off, go ahead. I'm going to give you some time right now. If you've got to run over across the room, get back to your phone. If you've got to get to your Bluetooth speaker and hit the power button, whatever. I'm going to give you some nice time here because I'm going to talk about Avengers Endgame. I'm going to give you some spoilers on the movie as well. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to be responsible for blowing this experience for you because like Game of Thrones... This is one of the cultural experiences of our day right now in entertainment that everyone kind of has seen and is talking about together. Um, And those kind of events are just rare. They're hard to come by in any era, but especially in in this day and age when there's so many choices for you of things to watch. So Avengers Endgame, it's in theaters right now. It will be in theaters probably for the next seven months uh, because it's just raking money in. Uh, And I have to imagine people are going to see it multiple times. So this represents essentially the end of what all the first 21, 22, however many there have been now, Marvel Cinematic Universe's movies have been doing for the last 11 years since the first Iron Man came out. They've been building toward this. And, oh, my God, it has been such an impressive achievement to watch unfold in real time for Disney, for Marvel Studios. They have done... Just incredible work to get this to this point and to maintain people's interests over the the course of years using characters that have been around for decades um, who could be really lame characters. Like, I mean, honestly, who in the 2000s, 2010s would really get that excited about a guy named Captain America? You know, how would how would they make him interesting to us? Um And they did, and they made him incredibly interesting, and they made his movies fantastic, some of the best action movies I've ever seen. Because they handled everything with care, they handled it all seriously, and they put it all in a place uh, in terms of building a world that made us all engaged in it and care about what all these stories were saying because we knew we were going to keep up with the next story as well, and you didn't want to miss one. You didn't want to miss any of the Marvel movies as they were coming out. So Endgame is finally here. And it's not the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's just the end of it as we knew it. Because, obviously, they killed off two of the main characters, uh, two, arguably the two main characters of the entire thing, going back to the beginning. And that being Iron Man and Captain America. We're not going to see them anymore as we knew them. We're not going to see, I should say, we're not going to see Tony Stark. Because there could be another Iron Man and there could be another Captain America. But we're not going to see Steve Rogers Uh anymore because they're just they're not going to be able to be there they're not going to be there anymore so they're moving on and what a beautiful thing because that's what you have to do even though you've got this juggernaut you got to move on you got to keep changing it up and i think it really works i'm going to tell you why because we when we saw in game in theaters on the saturday of the weekend it came out we were sitting next to I was sitting right next to this kid who, I don't know how old he was. He was probably like eight or nine, something like that. This kid was so pumped up for everything that was happening in the movie. Like he kept, His mom kept shushing him. It was really funny. I didn't care. He wasn't bothering me. Uh, but she kept shushing him because he just like kept talking through everything. He kept getting so excited, like yelling at the screen. Um like in a thrilled way, not in a, not being mad. He was like just pumped by everything that was happening. So it was all working for him. And again, this is like an eight or nine year old kid. So this is a kid who 
was not old enough to remember when Iron Man came out. He he has to have only watched that on DVD if he's seen the first Iron Man. That's like considered an old movie to him. That's like old ass movies to him. This kid though, he he was pumped up for Iron Man. He was pumped up for Captain America, but he was so pumped up for Captain Marvel when they showed her, for Spider Man when they showed him, and for Black Panther when Black Panther finally when when he finally came back. In this movie, this kid was, like, jumping out of his seat, especially when Captain Marvel flew back on screen and, like, wrecked that huge ship and, like, flew through it all the way through the middle of it and crashed it herself. This kid was, like, out of his seat jumping up and down, which was impressive because he was in a recliner. Um, And that was when I was like, this has worked. What they've tried to do has worked because to this kid, like, yeah, Captain America's great, Iron Man's great, Thor's cool. But those are like the old guy heroes. That's like, those are my dad's heroes, whatever. That's what he's thinking. His heroes were like Captain Marvel, Black Panther, and Spider-Man, which are the ones that they've introduced in the last two years, giving them their own movies. So to his generation, those are the Avengers. Those are the Avengers characters that he cares about. And so he's going to be thrilled to watch uh, the next Avengers movie, which is going to be led by Captain Marvel, Spider-Man, um, and, you know, by some of these other characters that they're going to introduce now in the next couple of years. So that's it really has worked. They've passed the torch to a new generation to uh, to quote JFK. And it was really cool to see that it made me even like the movie even more. And I already did like it. Like, I really I thought Avengers Endgame was really good as far as tying up storylines that have spanned years, finding a way to keep this thing interesting, even though it was three hours long. I never felt like it felt three hours i did not feel like a moment of this movie dragged i really did enjoy pretty much all of it uh, now i'm not going to just praise it the whole time there are some things i'm going to knock on it but i want to say overall i enjoyed avengers Endgame, and i liked how they use time travel which is just a worn out shitty storytelling device but they used it in this movie to give us a story that carried some weight and also provided plenty of fan service and rewards for having seen the other movies because we're they're going it was like back to the future too they're going back to scenes from the other avengers movies um and the other mcu movies that we hadn't seen in a while and it was cool it was a, a cool excuse to go back and visit some of those like asgard we got to see asgard again even though it doesn't exist anymore um so that might be the last time we ever get to see asgard so that was pretty cool and it was fun to see some of like the grab bag combinations of superheroes that we saw working together during the heist missions, which was essentially what they were. They had to do like these mini heist missions to go back and get all the Infinity Stones. Which I'm guessing you already know because you're listening to the spoiler uh, review of Avengers Endgame, so you've probably seen it. But if you haven't, that's what they had to do. They had to go back in time to times where they knew the Infinity Stones were, places that they knew they were at specific times, and they had small little teams of like two to three people each going back and and getting each of them so that they could bring them to the president and wreck uh, Thanos' plan to kill half of all of the, you know, the universe, I guess it was. I guess it wasn't just Earth. So, but, you know, one thing that I, yeah, I have to knock this movie on is the way that it treated Black Widow. She deserved a lot more because her character was essentially the beating heart of the Avengers, especially when everything went down. Now, at the end of Infinity War, when Thanos killed everybody, 
everyone kind of gave up. So what you see in Endgame is like a five-year flash forward and no one's doing anything. Like Thor got fat and Iron Man just lives in the woods with his family and doesn't care about helping anyone anymore. Um, He's just kind of receded into his own life and he's done trying to be a hero to people because he feels like he has too much to lose now. So he's basically selfish at this point. But Black Widow's still out there trying to coordinate things, still trying to figure out a way that they can undo what has happened. She spent five years of her life doing this that we don't see, but we see the evidence of. So her character is as important as any in the entire film. And of course, they kill her as well uh, in this movie. And really, in a, in kind of an unceremonious way, uh, they kill her instead of killing Hawkeye because essentially, you know, she doesn't have a family, so she's worth less than he is, which is a terrible, terrible uh, message to send to people. And such a tired, worn-out way to treat women characters especially. Now, what, if she had been like somebody's... If she had had kids somewhere along the way, then I guess she would be worthy of being saved. I don't know. It's just a, it's a, just a bad... It left a bad taste in my mouth. That did. Because that character especially did so much to deserve so much more than what she got in the end. Captain Marvel also, shockingly underused in this movie because she was the one... Her her movie was a huge hit, and it, lay, it came right before Endgame, so I thought she was going to be like a major player in Endgame. It made sense we didn't see her Infinity War because we didn't know who she was at that point. But then she her movie comes out, huge hit. Obviously, they've made all these way ahead of time, so they don't know if it's going to be a hit. But either way, they know we're going to know Captain Marvel at this point. She's like the most powerful of all of the you know Avengers by a mile. She makes you know Tony Stark look like Ant-Man, basically. And they didn't even use her at all in the movie. She, she's gone for more than half of it. She finally shows up in the end, kicks some ass, and then... That's it. Doesn't really say anything. And she's gone. So I guess they shot, though, I guess Brie Larson shot this movie before she shot Captain Marvel. So she wasn't as probably in tune with the character as she was after she had done Captain Marvel. But I was just shocked by how underused she was. They just didn't use her very much. She was more like a prop. She just, she was like a weapon, really. She just came in and deployed her you know, powers whenever they needed her and then kind of kind of split. So I'm guessing we're going to see, obviously, a lot more of her as the new wave of films progresses. She's going to be, I would have to imagine, probably like the de facto leader of the group now. She's probably going to be the new uh, Tony Stark, and I have to imagine maybe Black Panther being kind of like a Captain America uh, kind of deal, if I can compare them to those those characters. Uh, you know, the scene where they did Tony Stark's funeral, that's going to go down as one of the, the classic scenes of, of all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just seeing all those characters at once, you know, wearing black and seeing, you know, Tony's little memorial floating into that lake there at his house. Uh, it was a beautiful moment. It was, um, you know, really sad because this was this was the character that built this whole thing and, and the character that really, I mean, everybody loved. Who doesn't love Tony Stark? He was... Such a kind of a lovable jerk um, and a really good hero. He was a really you know well-rounded, interesting hero. Um, it gave us plenty of reasons to root for him, and Robert Downey Jr. gave such a great performance as him. It was like the party was born to play, it seemed like. But the funeral, I thought, was really well done. I especially liked that they showed the kid from Iron Man 3, kind of grown up. Nobody really knew who he was. I had to look it up. But that was who that was. It was the kid who was in the, the, you know, the, the shed, that Tony outfitted with all that technology in Iron Man 3 when he was kind of in hiding. The kid was like the only person who knew who he was. So he uh, 
that kid showed up to his funeral, which was kind of cool to see. Um, but I did wonder why did they not honor Black Widow at the same time? I mean, did she have a funeral? Was it as big of a deal? If not for her, the whole mission wouldn't even have happened and half the earth would still be in dust. So I hope that she got a, a great funeral. They didn't need to do two funeral scenes, but they could have combined them into one. It was just weird that, you know, she wasn't there and it was like nobody cared that she wasn't there. I don't know. Uh, uh, so I don't know. That's the only thing I really didn't like about the about Endgame was the way they treated that they did my girl Black Widow dirty and she's going to have her own movie so apparently it's going to be a prequel Uh, so we are going to get to see some more Black Widow I think that one's coming next year so we're going to get to see some more Black Widow so that's good a little bit more Scarlett Johansson in our lives kicking some more ass Um, and that's that story will go a long way in kind of padding out all of her details but it probably would have meant more if we had seen that movie before we saw her die because now I guess that we know how it ends. It's it's going to be sad, but I think it would have meant more if we had gotten to know her a little bit better before we knew that she had a tragic ending to her story, which was a little bit anticlimactic, I think, in the end. But Avengers Endgame, very well done. You can't ask for much more than wrapping up a huge, you know, unprecedented scale world of blockbusters uh, in that way. They wrapped it up about as well as they possibly could, and they set up the future of this franchise uh, for years and years to come. Clearly, that kid next to me, he loves where it's going, Uh, and there's a new Spider-Man movie coming out in a couple months, so the wheels will keep rolling, but then we won't have a new Marvel movie for more than a year after that, so it's going to be a long drought, longest drought we've had in a long time. So, uh, those are my thoughts on Avengers Endgame. What did you think of it? Did you enjoy it? Did you uh, feel like it was too long? Did you uh, wish it was longer? What did you want to see that you didn't get to see in this movie? Black Panther also was horribly underused in the movie. We barely got to see him at all. Everyone was salivating to see Black Panther come back, and then he was just there, and we saw him like punch a few people, and then he, it was that was the end of it. So that was kind of disappointing, but we'll move on. There'll be a lot more movies, a lot more t- chances to see him in action, kicking ass, and his sister as well doing the same thing. Uh, so that's going to do it for this edition of the Stream Police Podcast. It was a packed one. I'm glad I was finally able to get in here and talk with you again. I'll be feeling even better next month when we talk about the finale of Game of Thrones. And the way it all went down. If you want to send me thoughts before I do the episode, I would love uh, that. So I'll have a little bit more fodder to come in here with and your reactions. If you want to send them to me, it's theclintdavis at gmail.com. It doesn't have to be anything detailed. Just what would you think of it? Theclintdavis at gmail.com. We'll talk to you then. Uh, you can uh, check me out again on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, And you can email Andy as well at sedlackjournal at gmail.com. Thank you guys very much for chatting with us. We'll talk next time. Until then, stream on, my friend. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.